So then let's turn now to the Word of God. Uh, From the book of Colossians, chapter 3, only four verses this morning, but they are deeply meaningful and impactful and relevant to us today. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. This is the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. Amen. So I I don't know if this happens to you, um, and I didn't even decide or or want this to happen. It just sort of started happening, and I haven't turned it off. But I, I get weekly notifications on my phone uh, of the amount of time that I spend looking at my screen, or at least the amount of time that the screen is on. Uh, screen time notifications. And I tend to average uh, maybe one and a half hours a day, uh, so sometimes close to two, depending on, on, on what I'm doing or how I'm using my phone that day. And that, when, when, you, when you put it all together, that sounds like a lot of time, doesn't it? And you can tell me later if, if you think that's good or bad. Um, but it made me think, what if you got a weekly notification of your thought time? Uh, if, if, if there was an app that could track your thought patterns and, and, and you could go into details and you could look at this app and it told you what you thought about as you drove to work, as you made coffee, as you stood in the line at the DMV or drifted to sleep or got lost daydreaming or, or distracted or bored listening to the sermon. Yeah, and wouldn't it, wouldn't it be interesting to have data on that, to know what you thought about most and how rabbit trails uh, developed for you, what, what thoughts brought up different emotional feelings, what you found most interesting and most boring. And that kind of review would, would be pretty revealing, I think, for most of us. And what we, we would find is that we don't really think a lot about what we spend time thinking about. Um, focus on what's most important. I think everyone, to some degree, agrees that that's important. But it's also really hard. And, and, and you know that, and I know that. We're led into unintentional or unhelpful thoughts, and we're distracted away by temptations or other just useless distractions. <laughs> Ironically, often, uh, the thing that tells me what I think about most is the thing that most distracts me from thinking about what I should be thinking about most. Uh, These days, uh, this is where uh, many people from different kinds of places are advocating for mindfulness or uh, meditation, different kinds of practices, some new, some ancient, uh, that purport to be helpful in in giving us skills and tools to focus properly. Um, And and, and it sounds, these verses that, that we read from Paul, Paul wrote the book of Colossians, it almost sounds like he's tapping into some of that, like helping us to focus on what matters most, to to declutter our minds. And I think in a way, we could see it that way. But there's more that, that Paul is doing than most people that are advocating for mindfulness and meditation these days. Paul gets really specific. 
It's not just the tools that we can uh, put into practice to help us uh, meditate and focus, but it's the content of what we're thinking about while we're focusing that is so important. And, and I think we could summarize it this way. The more our focus is set on Christ, the more we're prepared for his glory. The more your mind is set on Christ, the more you will be prepared for his glory. And, and if that even still sounds like a little bit of a, a nebulous thought, um, let me tease that out over the next few minutes. Under three headings, what's your story? What's important to you? And what's your hope? What's your story? What's important to you? And what's your hope? So first of all, what's your story? Uh, the structure of this passage is basically uh, something like this. We need to think this way because reality is this way. The, because of how reality is, we should think according to that. But I want you to notice something strange but also wonderful about the way that Paul talks about reality, particularly the reality of Christ's life in you. Okay, there's something strange and wonderful here. It, it, it reminds me, when I was 15, I got my first real summer job. I had had sort of odd jobs for a couple weeks here and there in summers previous to that, but when I was 15, I got my first real summer job. From uh, the, the last day of school to the first day of school the next year, I was working this job. I worked long hours. It was for a landscaping company, uh, cutting grass and weeding flower beds and stuff. Um, it, it, was, it was a really good job for a 15-year-old. I, I enjoyed most of it. Um, but a few weeks in, I was, I was very, very green, very new, didn't know much. I was a shy kid, and I was working on this new crew. Uh, and uh, the foreman of the crew was driving the truck. It was early in the morning. We just left the, 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 the place where we all met up beforehand. We're going to the job site. I'm sitting in the back of the truck. He's driving. The other guys are asleep, still catching up on sleep, and I couldn't sleep. I was kind of nervous. And, and this guy, Art, he's probably late 40s, early 50s, this rough blue-collar dude. He's driving the truck, and he looks in his rearview mirror. He says, hey, kid. What's your story? I'd never really talked to him before. I, I didn't know him very well. Um, and he asked me what, what my story was. And uh, I froze. I didn't know how to answer him. Uh, you see, I didn't know that telling other people about myself was going to be a part of this job. I didn't necessarily sign up for that part of it. Uh, I, I had very little self-awareness and self-confidence at this point in my life. But I, I also remember feeling intimidated by the question itself. I mean, to actually describe in a meaningful way who you are and, 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 and what you are and how the events of your life have led up to the person that you are today, to summarize that in a couple minutes from 15 years and then to cast it into a narrative that's compelling, that felt a lot for 15-year-old me. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I said something like, oh, I don't know, I don't have one. And he thought that was kind of weird and it was sort of an awkward moment and I don't know what happened. I can't remember what happened next. But he, he asked me, it, it's a legitimate question on the other hand, isn't it? What's your story? So would you have done any better? D do you do any better when that question comes up? I don't know if you've ever been asked that explicitly, but it's an important question. Well, you know, if, if you love Jesus, Paul gives you a bit of a cheat code in answering the question. Uh, the answer to what's your story is that Christ is my story. 
In other words, Christ's story is my story. That's actually the strange and wonderful way that Paul talks about Christ's life. If you look at verses 1 and 3, think about it. He's talking to a church, and and, and he's making Jesus' life sound like it's their own biography. Because by faith, it is. What does Paul say? He says, you, talking to the church, you have died, you have been raised with Christ, Your life is hidden with Christ. You died his death. You were raised with his resurrection and you have his glory somehow in you. Your story, united to his, notice this as well, is a two-part story, dying and rising. Dying to selfishness, to sin, to unrighteousness, all those things in us that caused Jesus to go to the cross. He died that death for you. And by faith, by your faith, that's uniting you to him. And so secondly, the second part of Jesus' story, which is now ours, his resurrection, rising to glory with God, because again, that's what Jesus, united to you and you to him, did for you. And so there's this refrain, this rhythm, this this echo over and over again in Paul's words, you with Christ, you with Christ, you with Christ. So what's your story? You know, there's a lot of us in here um, with different kinds of stories. And you might have a much more interesting story than 15-year-old me. Uh, And you probably could tell your story in a much more compelling way, and it would be fascinating. But who's the director of your story? How, how, how do you tell it? How do you think of who you are and where you've been in such a way that it's led to who you have become? Who's the star of the story? Is, is your life a little bit too self-directed in your own esteem? You know, you, you, the way that you cast your story, the way that you present yourself might be compelling enough to convince other people of your own competence and importance, and even yourself sometimes. But how often are we just kind of trying to cover up the fact that we actually don't really know who we are, and we don't really know where our life is going? And, and, and we, we bump up against these moments, maybe you've had one recently, where There's a stubborn place in your life that shows that this self-directed life that you're trying to live, it's just not doing it. It's just not doing it for you. That reality doesn't match what your life actually is. And, and, And that can be a hard place to be, but it doesn't have to be a bad place, but just a necessary place where you put some things to death. The kind of death that Paul is talking about here, the the death that Jesus died for you, death to your sin, death to Christless ambition, maybe. And with God's help, you realize that your whole story is wrapped up in Christ, that Christ's story actually accords to reality perfectly, and it's for you. So it can be a beautiful place to be when you realize that, 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 that you don't cut it as the director and the star of the show. And that's okay. Because that's where Christ's biography really does become the narrative arc of your life. 
And that, that moves me to the next important question that I want to ask. What's important to you? If Christ is our story, then what's most important to you? <clears throat> you see, the logic of this text is if you've been raised with Christ, then make sure your mind reflects that. Uh, and, and Paul brings this out in a really interesting way. He says uh, twice, he says the same thing kind of in two slightly different ways. Um, he, he says both to seek and to set your minds on th- this phrase, the things that are above. Right? And I, I think we should interpret those as two parallel statements saying basically the same thing. Um, it, it means to, 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 to think or be interested about, seek, set your minds on. But there's a reason Paul says it twice, and he says it in two different ways. I think it's his way of unfolding the dying and the rising that needs to take place in our minds. You see, twice he mentions, as I said before, the things that are above. The first time he says it, it's, it's, it's almost exclusively a positive idea. Set your minds on the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He describes it positively. Set your mind on that. But then second, kind of negatively and more contrastively, he says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Okay, so what does that mean? Because it's possible, I think, to read that and think that we need to shun the world or just like ignore the world, to put our head in the sand, minimize the importance of the world, maybe. But that's not what Paul is saying. At least, not, at least I don't think so. I think it's better to let what Paul says about the things that are above in, in, in verse 1 define how we should be thinking about everything, the world included, in verse 2. So let's bring that together. Uh, in verse 1, he's talking about Christ, his glory, his power, his authority, and mission in the world. And, and, and these things are not so much a set of things that we need to think about over and against the things that are on earth, as if we're not allowed to think about a whole bunch of things. Instead, Paul is saying, think about all things the way that Jesus would and does think about all things. Maybe this is sort of parallel to what he says in another letter, if you're familiar with it, uh, to a different church, that we should have the mind of Christ. The goal is to filter every thought and everything, every intention about our life and about the world through this mind that we have inherited in resurrection and in glory with Christ that, that is ours in union to him. If you've been raised with Christ... You get to think with him too, is what Paul is saying. And and the way that Jesus kind of works this into your life is through personal uh, personal interaction. Uh, and, 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 And he spends time with you. You see, Jesus loves you. And he wants to get close to you. He wants to spend time with you because he wants to change your mind. And, and, and he takes a very personal approach to this, hands-on even, uh, more so than your closest friend. He wants to be your closest friend. And as he does, he doesn't say, okay, you can think what you want to think, and I don't have the right to insert myself into your business. So believe what you want to believe. I'm just here for when you need me. That's not the role that Jesus plays in our life. Uh, Jesus, the Lord of all creation, says, actually, no. 
I love you, and I have the right to insert myself into your business and to help you think better. <laughs> and thank God that he does. Uh, think of it this way. Um, th- this may be jarring and surprising to you, but I've realized this earlier this week. Christmas is coming up soon, you know. Uh, it, it, it's like two months away, which is uh, kind of scary for me. But it's time to start thinking about that, I suppose. So what is Christmas? Uh, Christmas is God in Christ pushing himself into our business and saying, you're not going to think the same way again because I'm going to do something amazing. Because we needed more than a professor and a philosopher and a set of principles to live our lives by. We would have ignored that if it came from God. God came himself as a person to get close to us, to win us, to invite us and unite us personally to him. And now our life is filled with personal invitations to think his thoughts after him. So go ahead and pull up that imaginary app on your phone that gives you that thought life data. And do a prayerful year-to-date review. Christ and his kingdom and his authority, his will, it should permeate everything and add meaning to everything in our life. And, and, and I find that behind much of my mindfulness, mindlessness in this area is not so much a lack of time management, although I could definitely be better at time management, but it's a lack of faith. You see, I falsely believe that Jesus, in some way, lacks depth and, and wonder and fulfillment. And so I, there, there are these kind of random areas of my life where it's, for some reason, a bit more easy to forget that Jesus is constantly there by his Spirit with me. And I even prefer to process the world around me without him. It's weird, isn't it? But it's something that I do, and I imagine... It's something that most or all of you do as well. And I think the key to solving this is to to believe and trust that we have a present Christ unified to us in our life. You know, I I think it's interesting. Many of us maybe make personal discipleship out to be this thing where we are distant and aloof uh, from life so that we can be nearer to God. We sort of separate the two. And we, see, we feel disconnected from him. And maybe it's even busyness in our life that can make us feel disconnected from God. And we develop this almost adversarial, transactional relationship with the time that we feel we have to spend in scripture reading or Bible study. Like we have to shut our lives off so that we can go be with Jesus. But what if that's not actually true? What if we believe in a Jesus who is united to you by grace and not by time stamp? You see, the goal of discipleship is not to balance out your disconnected from God time uh, so, so that you can have more connected to God time. The goal of discipleship is to, uh, to, to change your mind, to have the mind of Christ in all moments so that you don't have any disconnected from God time. You know, as I reflect on this for myself, uh, typically whenever I have a, a season of spiritual growth, uh, it, it, it's on the heels of a moment of realization where one of those areas of my life where I've assumed that God has not been there, I realize in a stark way that he is. That he's been there all along. That he's been there to correct me and to convict me, but also to, to lead and guide me and comfort me. 
to grow in thinking like Jesus. And, and, and it will take time reading the Bible and praying. And, and, and we need to definitely make sure that we're doing those things. But don't stop there. It's just as important to ask, in what subdivisions of your life's city are you kind of just driving through, putting blinders on, and pretending that Jesus is not there? Almost as if you're driving along in the car with him in, in, in the car, and then you have, you have to stop somewhere and let him out because he can't go any further with you. That's actually a ridiculous view of Jesus, isn't it? Maybe you're so busy at work or overwhelmed by crying kids or burdened by one thing or another. Maybe it's, it's the shame that you feel over your own sin and you feel like Jesus would surely never accept me if I let him into this place, so, I'm, so I just can't do it. I need to clean myself up first before letting Jesus in. But again, for all, for all the places that we do that, that's just silly. And it's, it, it's stunting our growth. And, and by the way, what an exhausting thought. Is it any wonder that we feel disconnected from God? That we have to, as it were, add time to the clock so that we can pay back our disconnected from, time, from God moments with more connected to God time. Maybe, maybe God actually wants us to rest in him all the time, uh, and, and maybe we would get better sleep at night if that were the case. You see, what would it actually be like if we truly believed, even 5% more than we do now, that when we entered those areas of our life where in the past we've assumed God isn't there, that we believe that the Lord is with us, that you can pray to him and have access to him by his spirit, by God's grace in Christ, and that he will hear you because your life is hidden with him in God. Wouldn't that transform us? If we picked four or five of those Christless subdivisions in our lives and rediscovered how present he actually is with us, that would change us individually and as a people, wouldn't it? And, and, and that would not just uh, change our minds, but it would change specifically our hope. So let me ask this last question. Uh, what's your hope? What is your hope? Uh, one of Paul's intentions in this passage is to give us something tangible to hope in. You know, we've been over the gospel of what Jesus has done. He's died and he's risen uh, both of those things united to us to uh, unite us with him in his glory. But verse 4, if you look at it, is all about what Christ will do. The gospel of what Christ will do. And if you look closely, you'll notice that similar pattern we've already seen. That when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You with him, right? You with him. When he appears, you will appear with him. Let that sink in. But do you think about that on a regular basis? Even on a periodic basis, do you think about that? Does that cross your mind? Virtually every book in the New Testament talks about Jesus' second coming. This isn't some theoretical thing. This isn't some secondary doctrine. This is this is one of the maybe two or three things that if we believe the New Testament says is true, is going to happen, is real. He is coming back. 
Now, there's even more to it than that. Jesus is coming back here. Johnny, that's obvious. But think think about it. He's coming back here. And, And our hope should be all about what Jesus will do to recreate and renew us in this world. This very world that, is, that seems so broken. And, and that's something that should be obvious given all of the biblical teaching on it. But it's something that has been absent from our thinking and uh, may, maybe is, is something that needs to be corrected. It, it's, it's all too easy to believe that the second coming of Jesus will be some kind of rescue out of this world to some spiritual existence somewhere else. When it's actually the promise of Jesus recreating all things and giving us a, a, an honored seat at his table that he will recreate here. Again, uh, let me talk about Christmas. In less than two months, the Christmas lullaby away in a manger is going to be sung over and over again, maybe even in your home, probably in mine because I have small kids. Um, but one of the lines in this song asks the little Lord Jesus to take us to heaven to live with you there. Take us to heaven to live with you there. Now, that's not a bad thing to want. All I'm saying is that's not the best thing to want. Okay, to be be blunt, that's not the highest thing that the New Testament wants you to hope in. Because if we take that line at face value, what's it talking about? Uh, You know, and and at the risk of overanalyzing it, it's what theologians would call the intermediate state. Uh, which is what happens when we die. When we die, our, our bodies go into the ground and our souls go to heaven to be with Jesus there. But what is that? That's not the highest good. That's not God's highest intention for us. When you die as a consequence of sin, since the very beginning, since the fall, what has happened to human beings when they die is their soul is ripped from their body. And the body that God made to live forever with him and glorify him forever is now lifeless and it rots in a grave, transformed by and back into the dust from where it came. And so take me to heaven to live with you there is a consolation prize. It is a consolation, don't get me wrong. Again, I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad thing to sing or that we should rip that out of uh, the, the, the hymn, but we just need to think in the back of our minds, okay, we can think that, but... It's not the best thing. Don't settle for that. With all the comfort that we have of having our souls with Jesus when we die, there's actually something much, much better in the future. And when we're with him there, we will even still wait with eager expectation for what he will do when he returns. You see, the New Testament indicates that even there, we're going to wait for him. And he will come back and recreate the earth to renew it, to make it new. And that will come. We don't know when, but it will come. And when that comes, he will come not to take us away to live with him somewhere else, but to bring heaven back here. Uh, There's a really good book by Anthony Hokema, I think it's called The Bible in the Future. I read it uh, last year. And he says this. I want to read this quote. 
talking about this very thing, uh, he says, since God will make the new earth his dwelling place, and since where God dwells, there heaven is, we shall then continue to be in heaven while we are on the new earth. For heaven and earth will then no longer be separated as they are now, but they will be one. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's something to set our minds on. You see, after heaven has come to earth for good, and our, our, our souls are reunited with a perfect, recreated body to live with God forever, think of all the things that we won't have to do anymore. Medications, lockdowns, dealing with people's sin and your own, uh, the, the embittered disappointments that we struggle with and that grieve us, the losing relationships that have meant so much to us, missing out on opportunities that you wished would happen but they've failed you, burying people that you love, that will all be a thing of the past. And, and all the pain that we have felt in this world now will only be, just by comparison, th that'll make the joys even better. And of course, we're not there yet. But this passage reminds us that it's coming. It's saying that we will be because our lives are united to Christ. And Paul gives us permission. This is the way he words it, the way he logics it. He gives us permission, even a command, to not, not just think that that will be great when that happens, but that will be great when that happens so that we can think about that and include that in our hope for now, for right now. That can change our lives right now. So let me ask you this, thinking about all those things, how often do we filter our thoughts about what's wrong in the world now, maybe even a difficult season that we're in now, do we filter our thoughts about those things through this hope, the hope of new creation? Whether that's a sickness that you're dealing with or chronic pain or one of those things that I, that I listed earlier, medications, lockdowns. I remember a number of months back, it was when we were in a different phase of the COVID world and we were, um, you know, we were kind of coming out of one of the series of lockdowns. And I remember thinking to myself, but we, but we were still in it, we, the, but light was at the end of the tunnel. And I remember putting my hope in the fact that light was at the end of the tunnel, as if in a few months it's going to be so great that I can take a mask off in 50% of places that I go to leave my house. And, and, and I set my hope on that. But isn't that silly? In, in light of the new creation realities, isn't that silly? To, to, to set our hope on something that is less than being with Christ in an embodied, perfected world. Frankly, that's, that's the kind of thing that atheists put their hope in. You know, I, I was listening to a, a podcast earlier this week, um, I, if, if, if I mentioned the podcaster's name, you would, you would recognize it because he's incredibly popular, and he was interviewing this celebrity who, if I mentioned his name, some of you would recognize it because he's the lead singer of a very popular band, and they were having what ended up being a very exclusivist conversation because they were talking about how, <laughs> it was kind of funny, how great their lives were, uh, these two celebrities with all kinds of money and, and resources. Um, but they were talking about how they deal with disappointments in life and the perspective that they've taught themselves with some years, uh, how to approach 
things that are not as good in their life. And, and, and they've kind of, you know, to paraphrase, to very, very loosely paraphrase, uh, the, the, the lead singer of this band said, well, the way that I think about it is, what do I have to complain about? What do I have to complain about? My life is actually pretty good, especially compared to many other people's in the world. My life is great. So what do I have to, com to complain about? On the one hand, that's an admirable way to think about the world. It's much better than just complaining and being very, very self-absorbed all the time. But I thought to myself, there's only a few people in the world that can really think about that the way that he does. Because he has so many things. And even if we broaden that a bit and included ourselves in the, you know, truly we are very blessed materially uh, compared to many other people in the world. So in a lot of ways we could say the same thing, but even still, we're selling ourselves way too short if our hope consists of, well, it could be worse. Our hope actually consists of, listen, it's going to get a ton infinitely better when Jesus comes back. Partially because that could be really, really soon. That could be really, really soon. Part of, uh, I, I think, a, a, an indication that we are too focused on, uh, we, we set our, our eyes too low, we don't think about Christ enough, is we don't think about the imminence of his return that it could be tomorrow. It could be in a, it could be this week, it could be this month. Think about it. You could wake up on a crisp fall morning and look out your window in the typical northwest uh, gray, cloudy day with some drizzle. But then all of a sudden, what the light that breaks through the clouds is not the sun, but the Son of God. Coming not to, 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 to take us away silently, but to renew the world and make his kingdom here with us forever. On that day, which again might be like this week, everything will be changed. And we truly will have joy. And so again, I, I just remind you, this is Paul telling you, be free to have that joy now. And to infect your life with that joy now. Because it's yours. It's yours in Christ. Let's pray. Our God, we, we, we are not filled enough with joy, but yet we do have joy. Uh, it's, it, it's even a, a sanctification process for us to realize the joy that we should have in Jesus, but we thank you for that which we do have. We thank you that you have reminded us by your word that you are coming back for us. You have not left us. We thank you that in the meantime, we have your spirit and that he is working in us, speaking to us your truth and helping us to see the, the truth of what Jesus has done and the truth of what he will do. So fill us with that hope, infect us with that joy, and may that be infectious for others. We pray that others would see the hope that we have and wonder at why it's so different from theirs. We pray that you would be working in us and around us. And so that we may even see little inklings of new creation in, in our lives and in the lives of others in this church. Uh, and, and, and thereby as well be reminded that you are coming back. And come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in your name. Amen.